guys can have a seat. Uh, well, good morning again. Uh, at this point in the service, if you've got kids that would like to go to children's worship, they can exit right out this back door, and Miss Beth and Ryan are going to take them, and they're going to have a great time together, so you can exit right out there. I did have a couple of other little announcements that I neglected to make, and, and I apologize for that. Um, so last week, I sort of forgot to tell you that Monday was going to be a big day last Monday because it was Alonzo's birthday. And, you know, far be it for me to uh, not call to attention the birthday of a, of a granddad, right? Speaking, speaking of grandparents, uh, oh, they're not even in here, they're out there. Um, anyway, speaking of grandparents, uh, Chris and Debbie Robertson are grandparents now. And so, uh, Andrew and Tressa had a baby on Friday, I believe it was Friday, and a little girl. So anyway, I'll let them tell you all the details, uh, because I will get the details wrong, but uh, it's really exciting. So those are two things I wanted to make sure that we shared with our church family this morning. So uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, or whatever device that you look up scripture on. We're going to be actually zooming in on verses 1 through 18 today. You know, when I wrote that, I actually, until just now when I read that line in my notes, I didn't think about that, but zooming in on something takes on a whole different meaning now, doesn't it? Uh, since we've used Zoom for the last, you know, for two years during the pandemic. But we're going to be zooming in, the, the first use of Zoom, not the brand name, uh, on Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18 today. You know, when a, when a person uh, who has committed a crime receives a presidential pardon, all of their crimes are forgiven. Uh, but it's their crimes of the past. That presidential pardon is insignificant, or excuse me, insufficient for any crimes that they may commit in the future. According to the History Channel's website, the American president has the ability to circumvent the justice system by issuing official pardons to anyone of his choosing. Unlike most executive powers, the authority to grant clemency is unchecked by Congress and cannot be reviewed, blocked, or overturned. This lack of oversight has made the pardon one of the most controversial presidential powers, but in some instances, the act of pardoning has helped ease tensions, heal political wounds, and even right some historic wrongs. That's, again, according to the History Channel website. Now, from uh, MrLincolnsWhiteHouse.org, I found some information about Abraham Lincoln and presidential pardons that I wanted to share with you because it's going to get us into where we're going here. Plus, we're in the land of Lincoln, so it's appropriate to use something from his presidential, uh, presidential time in office. Uh, because the president was considered a compassionate man, many requests for pardons and deferrals of execution came in. During his presidency, he reviewed over 1,600 cases of military justice, Makes sense, because it was during a time of war. Mr. Lincoln called many of the cases of military cowardice his leg cases, because, as he said, if Almighty God gives a man a cowardly pair of legs, how can he help their running away with him? When in doubt, President Lincoln tended to delay his decision on such cases. He would say something like, I must put this by until I can settle in my mind whether this soldier can better serve the country dead than living. And David R. Locke, a journalist and humorist, observed, 
No man on earth hated blood as Lincoln did, and he seized eagerly upon any excuse to pardon a man when the charge could possibly justify it. The generals always wanted an execution carried out before it could possibly be brought before the president. House Speaker Schuyler Colfax reported the innovative way in which the president met with the conflicting needs of army discipline and both that and human compassion. A congressman went up to the White House one morning on business and he saw into the anteroom, always crowded with people in those days, there's an old man crouched alone in a corner crying as if his heart would break. As such a sight was by no means uncommon, the congressman passed into the president's room, transacted his business, and went away. The next morning, he was uh, obliged to go again to the White House, and he saw the same old man crying as before in the corner. So he stopped, and he said to him, what's the matter with you, old man? That's kind, isn't it? That sounds great. That's a, Alonzo, you had a birthday, so we can say that to you now, right? What's the matter, old man? I'm just kidding. He's going to hit me later. Uh... I'm just kidding. He's not going to hit me. (laughs) The old man told him the story of his son, that he was a soldier in the army of James, General Butler's army, that he had been convicted of a court-martial of an outrageous crime and sentenced to be shot the next week, and that his congressman was so convinced of the convicted man's guilt that he would not intervene. Well, said Mr. Alley, I will take you into the executive chamber after I've finished my business, and you can tell Mr. Lincoln all about it. On being introduced into Mr. Lincoln's presence, he was accosted with, Well, my old friend, what can I do for you today? The old man then repeated to Mr. Lincoln what he'd already told the congressman in the anteroom. A cloud of sorrow came over the president's face as he replied, I am sorry to say I can do nothing for you. Listen to this telegram received from General Butler yesterday. President Lincoln, I pray you not to interfere with the courts martial of the army. You will destroy all discipline among our soldiers, signed B.F. Butler. Every word of this dispatch seemed like a death knell of despair to the old man's newly awakened hopes. Mr. Lincoln watched his grief for a minute and then exclaimed, By jingo, Butler or not Butler, here goes, writing a few words and handing them to the old man. The confidence created by Mr. Lincoln's words broke down when he read, Job Smith is not to be shot until further orders from me, signed Abraham Lincoln. Why, said the old man, I thought it was to be a pardon, but you said not to be shot until further orders, and you may order him to be shot next week. Mr. Lincoln smiled at the old man's fears and replied, Well, my old friend, I see you are not very well acquainted with me. If your son never looks on death till further orders come from me to shoot him, he will live to be a great deal older than Methuselah. See, in the presidential pardon, we see a human action done to prevent someone from being penalized for a crime they likely have committed. The issue therein is that it could potentially be argued that it was based on some kind of backroom dealing or the like. People still don't trust it. Further, the pardoned individual will face prosecution for any further crimes that they commit. The pardon is only valid for past crimes. If they commit more crimes they would need to be pardoned again or face punishment. Now, some of you are like, okay, that's a really long story. This is not history class. What are we talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant and the sacrificial system, we see that priests would present the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement year after year, and it would have to be continually done because it was insufficient to cover all of the sins of the people. As we read Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, you should see that God provided 
and shows us in the Old Covenant a shadow of good things to come. That Jesus came to do the will of God and that there was only one sacrifice that was actually sufficient to forgive and cleanse us from all sins, not just past and present, but also future as well. So let's read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. You can follow along in your copy of the word or on the screens behind me. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Ask God to help us understand and apply it. God, as we come to this amazing passage from your word. I pray you would pry open our hearts and flush them with the good news. Help us understand. Make us to apply it in our lives. To see areas in our lives where we need to put the life-changing gospel to work. Show us areas of our lives where we're still falling short and help us to know that we can rely solely on your grace showed us on the cross. I pray that I would decrease, God, that you would increase, that Jesus, you just be lifted high and glorified in this place. In spite of me, in spite of all of us, that you be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What is 
the shadow of good things that's spoken of in verse 1 at the very beginning of our passage. The shadow of good things. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. The shadow of good things. See, the law, the law in the Old Covenant contained a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of their realities. See, the sacrificial system in the entire Old Covenant was really foreshadowing Jesus' coming. You know, I've said this before. The whole Old Testament, which would include, right, the Old Covenant, um, the whole Old Testament points forward to Jesus' coming. The New Testament is about his ministry here on earth and about the church, points back to him and then forward to his second coming. So the sacrificial system, the entire Old Covenant, foreshadowed Jesus' coming. The word shadow here gives the idea not of an exact representation, but a foreshadowing. So when you shine a light behind something, it casts a shadow forward, okay? So a foreshadowing. Foreshadowing means to represent, indicate, or typify beforehand, okay? It's a literary term that occurs when an author provides hints or clues for future plot events. That's like the official definition for you. Now, in verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Now, the Greek word that's used there for form is this word icon. E-I-K-O-N. Icon. Icon. All right? What it means is the very image. Uh, that form or that, that icon, that very image, and is like an exact replica, a manifestation of the reality itself. And in the New Testament, Paul repeatedly refers to Christ as the icon, the image, the very representation of God. So I've got a few places, and I'm going to get around to why we're talking about that, because this says it's a shadow of those things. Okay, Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In Colossians 1.15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We are told in scripture to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. And one more, Colossians 3.10. And have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay? So we have Jesus. We have Jesus, the, the image of God. We're being conformed to the image. We're being conformed to Jesus. But what we have in this passage here, it's talking about a shadow. It's talking about the law being a shadow. It's clear he's not talking about it being an exact representation because he goes on to say it's a shadow of the form of those true realities. This instead is a shadow 
of the icon. icon. It's a shadow of the true form, a shadow of the image. It's a shadow of Jesus, a shadow of the image of God, which we said Paul continually refers to in the New Testament as Jesus. For example, you're reading a good book or you're watching a movie. I guess you read a good book, but you just watch a so-so movie in this case because I wrote it that way. I don't know. Anyway, so you're watching a movie, you're reading a book, and often there'll be clues along the way about what is coming. And it's not a complete revealing about what is coming, but there's these little pointers that clue you into what is going to happen later in the story. That's, like layman's terms, that's foreshadowing. Christ and his new order are the perfect reality to which the earlier ordinances pointed forward to. And the author of Hebrews wants his audience to understand that these good things that were to come have now come, and therefore they should hold firmly to them and draw close to God rather than falling back into the old covenant ways of worship because those were not the meal itself. That was the menu pointing forward to the true meal, right? This old order as a shadow could never bring those who participate in it into a state of perfection. They continually had to offer the sacrifices and offerings. Think about it this way. It's a shadow. So if I have a broom setting against the wall, and I need, and, and the sun's pouring through the window, and I can see, you know when the sun, ladies, I know you know this, when the sun's pouring through the windows, and you can see all the dust particles floating through the air and the beams, right? And you're like, oh, I should clean, I should clean. It's dusty in here, right? And so you go to get the broom. Now, if you go to get the broom and the sun's kind of, kind of shining through and there's a shadow of the broom because of the sunlight and you try to grab the shadow, it's not going to work. That's not going to get the floor clean, is it? Okay? I'm not suggesting that only women clean the floor, just so everybody knows, okay? I use a broom too. I just wanted to point that out. But if you try to grab the shadow of the broom, it's not going to happen, right? You've got to actually have the actual broom. The shadow's just an, it's just a shadow of the real reality of the broom. The old order, the shadow, could never bring those who participate in it into a state of perfection. They had to continually do it. The, the Day of Atonement was an annual reminder, year after year, of their sin. In the new covenant, God promises to never again remember the sins of his people. The yearly reminder of sins, according to F.F. F. Bruce, is more than a calling to mind of the sins, but it, it actually, when it, the sins were called to mind, it requires some form of action. It may involve repentance of the sin, or, if someone chooses not to repent, a persistence in them. That's on the part of man. The remembrance of sins in the sight of God involves him taking appropriate action, either pardon or retribution. Now, to the writer of Hebrews, there is a great contrast between the economy of the old covenant and the economy of the new covenant, where instead of a constant reminder of the failures and sin, there's God's promise to his people that he will remember their sins no longer. This is huge. This is huge. Instead of the annual reminder of the Day of Atonement and all of the uh, Jewish, uh, Israelite religious rituals, instead of that, we have a constant reminder of Jesus who paid them once and for all. And we remember that. We remember that how? We remember that when we gather to worship. We remember that when we partake in the Lord's Supper together. Friends, there's a difference 
between our humble and contrite confession of our sin to God and being someone who morbidly dwells on their sins already confessed and forgiven. There's a difference between humbly and contritely coming and confessing our sins to God. There's a difference between that and being someone who morbidly dwells on the sins that they've already confessed and goes back to them over and over and over again. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven. And we don't have to continually go back to it over and over again like they did on the Day of Atonement. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoration as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, as long as people's ideas about God and sacrifice were tied up in the old covenant way of thinking, they would continue in spiritual imperfection. And they would continue to have this reminder of sins, but it's never taken care of for all time if you don't have Jesus. And so they would constantly have to be going back over and over again. F.F. Bruce says, moral defilement cannot be removed by material means. The law cannot perfect believers. But thanks be to God, Jesus came following the plan of God. Following the plan of God. So the we have this shadow in the Old Covenant pointing forward. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't fall back into that because it was just pointing to Jesus. And Jesus came following the plan of God. So let's move on to that. Following the plan. Following the plan of God. Jesus came to do the will of God. God did not desire sacrifices. God's will that Jesus came to do was that we be sanctified. That we be sanctified. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. You may recognize a portion of that because it's from Psalm 40 that I read earlier in the service. Psalm 46 through 8 says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. See, God desires wholehearted obedience. This is the sacrifice he wants. It was this sacrifice that he received perfectly from Jesus, his son, when he came in flesh into this world. See, Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father on our behalf. He completely fulfilled the law and was the perfection that we could never be on our own. Not only did he die in our place, but he lived a perfect life in our place. By fulfilling the will of God to the uttermost, Jesus sanctified his people, the church. Also, in doing this, he was providing something that was unattainable to them and us based on the old covenant sacrifices alone. 
See, part of fulfilling God's will to the uttermost was the offering of his body once and for all. This body was prepared for him at his incarnation, what we refer to as when Jesus came to earth in the flesh. And it has been said that the atonement, the atonement where Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross, it has been said that the atonement explains the incarnation. Jesus came as a man in order that the sin of man would be put away by the sacrifice of Jesus' own body. Jesus was yielded to God in an obedience which was maintained even to his death. Yes, Jesus is God. And this was part of the plan. And he yielded himself to the plan even to the point of death. And the sanctification that his people receive is their cleansing from sin and being made fit for the presence of God so that they can offer him acceptable worship. Now, I want to take a moment and talk about this phrase, sanctification. We talk about it a lot in church. At least I talk about it a lot in church. Martin Luther said that because of faith, we freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things, love and praise the God who has shown us such grace. Thus, it is impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. Faith leads us to be declared righteous in God's sight, but faith also results in our sanctification. This is the inward transformation we experience from the point of conversion on. There are two ways in which the Bible speaks of sanctification. The first is the reality of positional or declarative sanctification, being declared sanctified or our position as a sanctified people. When we trust in Christ alone for salvation, we are definitively set apart as God's holy people, our creator's special possession adopted into the family of God. We are holy in God's sight and are forever marked as his. He would stand over us as his people and say, mine. Scripture also teaches that until we are glorified in eternity, we are often unholy in practice. So God's word calls us to engage with the Lord in the process of sanctification where we more and more die to self and live to Christ, seeking to obey him in all things. Because we've been marked out as holy, we are commanded to be holy. I want to say that again because that's really great. Because we are, sorry, because we have been marked out as holy, we are commanded to be holy, to become in our experience what we already are in God's sight. I didn't make that one up, okay? I don't know where it came from. I didn't make it up. That's why I said, some of you are like, well, you just said that's good. Yeah, I had to point that out. Because God has already marked us out, if we've trusted in Christ, we believe the gospel, we've asked Jesus to forgive us for our sin. We've surrendered to him as Lord and Savior. If we are a Christ follower, we've been marked out as holy. And he says, marked out as this one's holy. And we're commanded to be holy. We're commanded to become in our experience what we already are when God looks at us. And faith is no less essential for our sanctification than it is for our justification. 
we must believe God to bear fruit. And he asks us to do things that many times seem strange from an earthly perspective. When you read scripture and you just look at the commands in scripture that are true of God's people. So take the New Testament and everything that he says the church and members of the church, people in the church, are supposed to be about and do. Those who say, I follow Jesus, there are certain things that, we're, that Jesus expects from us. Okay? And some of those things, if you just do those things, they seem crazy, some of them, from a worldly perspective. Uh, there's a guy named Rich Stearns who wrote this on social media uh, several years back. He said this, Once you've signed up for Christ's mission, everything else becomes a question of, does this help me get there? So once, I, once I've surrendered to Christ, and I'm on mission for him, and I'm doing the things, that I'm, I'm being obedient to what he says is true of people who follow him, everything else should become a question of, okay, am I going to do this right? Does this help me get there? Does this help me get to where I need to be? There is no other sacrifice. There is no other sacrifice that needs to be done. We are declared holy by the sacrifice of Jesus. And so there was no other sacrifice that was needed. That's main point number three if you're following along or taking notes. There was no need for any other work to be done for salvation. Yes, we do work out our sanctification. But there is no other sacrifice needed. Our sin was atoned for. F.F. Bruce writes that a sacrifice, not of a passive animal who is sacrificed, but of a rational and spiritual being that in dying makes the will of God its own. And I love what, and I, I was telling Bethany on the way here, is like, I got a lot of quotes in this one. Okay, because I found a lot of really good things on this. In the death of Christ, J. Denny writes this. The Aaronic priests, that means the priests from the line of Aaron, that'd be the Levites. The Aaronic priests never sat down in the sanctuary. They remained standing through the whole performance of their sacred duties. In this, our author sees a token of the fact that their sacred duties were never done that their sacrifices always have to be repeated. But it was equally in keeping with the perfection of Christ's sacrifice himself that when he had presented it to God, he sat down at the right hand of God. No further sacrificial service can be required of the priest who appeared on earth in the fullness of time to put away sin and sanctify his people once for all. A seated priest is a guarantee of a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. And our high priest is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven as the mediator of these promises. This is the covenant, the new covenant in his blood. When I read that, I was, it was, oh yeah. <laughs> you know? It was one of those oh yeah moments. The priests... Year after year, they'd go in. They did all their duties standing up. They couldn't sit down because their duties were never done, right? And so they'd stand up the whole time they were serving. Jesus offers himself. He raises from the grave. He ascends to heaven. 
and he sits down at the right hand of God, waiting for the day when he'll return for his church. That's huge. That's how you know that his work of salvation is done. It's finished. When a sinner trusts Christ, all his sins are forgiven. The guilt is gone and the matter is completely settled forever. I read an illustration from a popular scholar a few years back that said that he was at a conference. He was sharing a conference with this, he called this person a fine Christian uh, psychiatrist, whose lectures were very true to the word. The trouble with psychiatry, he told me, I told this guy, is that it can only deal with symptoms. A psychiatrist can remove a patient's feelings of guilt, but he cannot remove the guilt. It's like a trucker loosening a fender on his truck so he won't hear the motor knock. A patient can end up feeling better, but have two problems instead of one. But when a sinner trusts Christ, all his sins are forgiven. The guilt is gone. He doesn't just not feel guilty. The guilt is gone. And the matter is settled completely forever. So friends, what should we do about all this? How, how might the original audience this have responded? How might the author have wanted them to respond? And how should we respond? Well, number one, be thankful in Christ. If you're in Christ, be thankful. Because he took care of our sin. He put our sin away. Secondly, see the law for what it is. See the law for what it is. It reveals our sin to us and points to Jesus as the ultimate answer for that. So when sin is revealed to you, you're reading scripture and you're like, oh, I see sin in my life. Repent of that sin and then move forward in the freedom of Christ. Repent of revealed sin. Third, follow Jesus in doing the will of God. Follow Jesus in doing the will of God. Well, pastor, how do I know what the will of God is? Well, I have some good news for you. He's revealed it to you here. You don't have to sit around, freaking out, like tossing fleece out to see if dew hits it. Because he's revealed his will for you here. It begins with your chief purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So follow Jesus in doing the will of God. Jesus did the will of God. He knew the word of God. He was the word, is the word. The word made flesh. So study the word of God. Obey what you find there. Stop trying to do enough to prove that you're good enough and just trust the truth of the gospel. That Jesus took care of it. That it's finished. That he's sitting down because the work is done. And trust that. And out of that gospel out of a grace-drenched heart, obey the word. Take part in your sanctification process. 
Sanctification starts at the moment of conversion, the moment you become a Christian. There should be this growth plane, not always the same speed, okay, and not always at the same, you know, slope. Look at me using math terms. Anyway, um, from the time of conversion till the time you're in a box in the ground and your soul is with Jesus in eternity. There should be this growth whereby you are constantly being more and more conformed into the image of Jesus. How does that happen? Well, you take part in that through the spiritual disciplines. I know, we don't like that word discipline. Spiritual disciplines. Well, I already mentioned one. Reading the word, engagement in the word, study of the word, memorization of the word. What other spiritual disciplines? Coming to worship with your church family. We're going to get into this later in the book of Hebrews, but we're told not to neglect the gathering of the saints. We're not supposed to be neglecting getting together to worship on the Lord's Day. So worship corporately. Secondly, worship privately. Anything you do can be an act of worship because worship is not singing. Worship is an attitude of the heart. It's really a lifestyle that we live. So read, pray, fellowship, serve, meditate on the word, evangelize. Tell other people about Jesus. When was the last time you just, you were reading something in the word or you heard something at church and you called somebody up to check on them, see how they're doing and say, hey, you know what my pastor said today? Okay? Or you know what I, look look what I saw in, in the Bible this morning at church. You leave me out of it if you want. I don't care. But when was the last time we did that? Because that also will help us in our sanctification and it will help in evangelism, sorry, can't speak, evangelism, it'll help that person maybe grow closer to God. If they already know Jesus, you can help in their sanctification because we do that with each other. You could read great books on this. I recommend you start with a book like The Imperfect Disciple by Jared C. Wilson. I've loan that book out to people before to read it's great and it addresses this um, resting in the gospel and obeying out of that rather than out of some misplaced uh, attempt to try and do 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 all this religious work to somehow earn God's approval Stop trying to earn your way to heaven. Stop trying to earn dad's approval and trust that Jesus has already accomplished everything necessary for salvation and eternal life and live your life on that. And I have to repeat that, not just for you, but for me. Because, like, I'm a pastor, but I'm also just a Christ follower like you, if you're a Christ follower. And I can fall into the same dangers that you can, the same traps of thinking that my performance at church or my uh, religious activity in some way makes me somehow more acceptable to God, and that's hogwash. The thing that makes me acceptable to God is Jesus shedding his blood on the cross in my place for my sin, raising from the dead three days later and sitting at the right hand of God as an accepted, final, sufficient sacrifice that never has to be repeated. You know, I started this sermon by telling you a story about Abraham Lincoln. 
I'm going to actually invite the musicians to come make their way back to the stage. But I started out by telling a story about presidential pardons and, and old Abe. And I started thinking about how a presidential pardon is not a good example of the gospel. Some people say, well, yeah, but, but you, you get your sins, you know, wiped away. Yeah, but that's not a pardon. A better illustration would be this. A crime is committed and that crime must be paid for. That crime must face wrath, judgment, punishment for that crime. So if instead of giving the old man a note for the pardon, a better illustration would be if Abraham Lincoln had stepped in and offered up himself to be shot as punishment for the man's crimes. That would be a more accurate representation and illustration of the gospel. Because Jesus stepped in, and though he had no sin of his own, had not done anything wrong, took the punishment for our sin, and it's finished. Hebrews ten eighteen, the last verse in our passage. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus put sin away. Have you trusted him to put yours away? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that your sacrifice was sufficient and final. That no sacrifice needs to ever be given again. God, help us not to fall back into religious ritual in our day after day, week after week, year after year of just of, of doing church and doing the things we need to do. Help us to not fall into that as like it is some kind of sufficient, but, o- but only trust that you are sufficient, Jesus. That you atoning for our sins is sufficient and once for all. And God, help us as we serve people, as we minister individually in our own personal lives as well as as a church, let us do that not out of trying to somehow earn your approval. Help us do that because we're already approved by you. Because we already have right standing with you if we've trusted in you, Jesus. because the gospel is true. Help us do what we do out of that. Not out of ritual, not out of roteness, not even out of habit necessarily. But let us do it out of thankfulness and grace-drenched obedience. I pray that as we go out that this message would stick in our hearts. that even as we gather and do a meeting here in a little bit, that that the message not get lost in our hearts and our minds because of all the other things we've got to do with voting and all that. But that this week you would recall to our mind these truths and that we would just revel in them. That we would worship individually and that you would, during the week, prepare our hearts to come back and worship you together again, Jesus. 
If there are those here who don't know you, I pray today would be their day of salvation. Today would be the day that they believe the gospel, that they reach out and talk to somebody who can help them understand what it means to follow you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for this church. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Would you stand and sing with us?